This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, an online journal of politics, economics, and culture, published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Welcome to the Discourse Magazine podcast. In this episode, which is part of a series called Fortress and Frontier, Conversations on Healthcare and Innovation, Robert Grayboys, Senior Research Fellow and Healthcare Scholar at Mercatus, talks to Dr. Keith Smith. Smith is an Oklahoma anesthesiologist who, in 1997, co-founded the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. In 2009, Dr. Smith and the center launched a path-breaking price transparency model that brought him international attention. Later, Dr. Smith co-founded the Free Market Medical Association, whose website allows individuals and employers to shop nationwide for doctors and medical facilities. In this interview, Grayboy speaks to Smith about the political opposition and other challenges he faced setting up his surgery center, how the internet is revolutionizing pricing for health care, problems in the health insurance industry, and much more. The audio for this interview, as well as the written transcript, have been slightly edited for clarity. Welcome to all our listeners, and a special welcome to a longtime friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Keith Smith. Keith received his medical training at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine and later did his fellowship in anesthesiology at the University of Arkansas. He has appeared countless times on television and radio, and his words have graced a long list of newspapers, magazines, and websites. Though Keith's day job is to put people into a sleep-like state before surgery, the innovations he instituted at his clinic have been a wake-up call for healthcare across the nation and around the world. Keith, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today. I'm honored to be with you as always, Bob. Thanks for having me. Delighted. So a number of years ago, I heard about this doctor out in Oklahoma City who was viewed as something of a revolutionary in the medical profession. His clinic, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, did the unthinkable. They posted all of their prices online so that every patient would know in advance, to the penny, what their costs would be. Their highly intuitive website allowed patients to see the prices for over, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was about 800 surgical procedures, maybe, maybe more, in an instant. Bills, when issued to patients, if they were issued, consisted of one or two items, not the hundreds of cryptic line items we're accustomed to seeing on medical bills. So, some years back, Keith and I connected, and I even made a pilgrimage out to his surgical center in Oklahoma, and in many ways, it was an eye-opener. Keith wanted to show that healthcare bills need not be confusing and opaque, or filled with the ugly, after-the-fact surprises. And at least in the early days, not everyone was keen on seeing people awaken to this fact. Some in the medical profession and in the insurance world were not at all pleased. And then later on, in founding the Free Market Medical Association, Keith wanted to take his little prairie fire and spread it nationwide. And he and like-minded physicians have certainly made inroads in that direction, inroads that have been noticed and acted upon beyond America's borders. So Keith, welcome to the podcast, and let's get started. For my first question, you know, for the benefit of the uninitiated in the audience, why don't you describe your pricing website in a little bit more detail than I've done so they'll know what we're talking about? Thanks for your kind introduction. Once again, in 2009, I launched a website, as you've said, with all-inclusive pricing. One of the important things people need to know about our pricing is that it is all-inclusive. That is 
apparently one of the excuses that is made for why everyone doesn't do this is the complicated process of bundling the pricing or the charges of all of the participants in a patient care episode into one price. My friend Jay Kempton equates that with someone selling the car, but the price of the steering wheel and the tires is not included. So I always thought it was it was the job of the seller in this market to do the work so that the buyer actually didn't have to search uh, to find to find pricing. So when I launched the website in 2009, uh, we were suffering for the first time from a retaliatory effort from the insurance companies and the hospitals that actually worked up, up to that point, all of the attacks against us for being a price transparent uh, and and also being a physician-owned, reasonably priced facility, all of those attacks backfired on everyone, everyone that tried to hurt us. But the hospitals, insurance companies finally came up with a kind of a formula that would it would hurt us, and they did. They, they almost killed us, and they they were successful in stacking deductibles so that the patients who were out of network who came to see us uh, had to first meet their in-network deductible before they would receive any benefit from having a policy at all. We were out of network with everyone uh, because there was an agreement, I'm sure, to make sure we were never in-network with anyone. We were out of network, and at that time, out of network, not by choice. I'm older and wiser now, and I know to to seek relationships with insurance carriers is a young person's folly. So we saw our waiting room empty because when the deductibles were stacked, it didn't make sense financially for patients to come see us uh, as, as much as they had up to that point. So I decided, you know, this doesn't make sense. We're cheaper. We're better we should have a line around the block uh, and our waiting room was empty. So I decided to post the prices for um, for three reasons. And, and the website was launched with these three reasons in mind. One, that we wanted patients that had sticker shock and buyers like self-funded buyers that had sticker shock. We wanted them to better be able to find us, uh, whether it was here in Oklahoma or wherever. We also wanted to start a price war. We wanted patients to be able to use this information to leverage a better deal in their local marketplace if they were not from around here. Uh, That was much more powerful, ultimately, than we had any idea. And then the third thing I hope to accomplish launching the site was to better understand some of the the scams that were at work uh, that thwarted the workings of a free market in this industry. Because we, like I said, we were better and we were cheaper and no one was here. So something's wrong. And usually that means government is wrong. And that's always the first bet. So I would argue all three goals have been achieved. We launched the website. And as you know, Bob, the first patients that arrived were Canadians. And, and that was instructive. You know, they all have coverage after, you know, they just don't have the care so many of them require. And then we saw more and more people that were uninsured. Uh, we saw people that some folks in the industry refer to as underinsured, the folks with real high deductibles or health savings accounts. And our entire bundled price was less than their deductible many times uh, going to one of these in-network hospitals. 
I met Jay Kempton, who ran a third-party administrator. So he basically handles the the checkbook for self-funded employers who purchase their employees' care out of operating revenue rather than having an insurance company take the risk. And he wanted to know if I would extend the pricing we listed online to his self-funded clients. And I said, if it feels, smells like a cash deal, then yes. And so he went through to just huge effort to make sure that was the case. So we then started dealing with the Kempton Group's clients. And so self-funded buyers, and they found that our all-inclusive price was less than half uh, the PPO allowables that they were quoted by the, the brokers they dealt with previously. Jay didn't keep me a secret. He could have. He did not. He told all of his competitors about us. Uh, he wanted to share this good news. I found myself speaking to a room full of Jay Kemptons. You know, at one point, I, I was speaking at a conference, and there were 600 Jay Kemptons in the room. Uh, and many of them still buy from us today. And likewise, when my competitors began to complain that they were losing business to me, for instance, Jay would have a Jay Kempton would have a client who needed a, a surgery, and the patient would be scheduled at another facility. And Jay's team would redirect them to my facility, and very powerfully redirect them uh, by telling the patient they would have no out of pocket if they came to Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Well, that didn't set very well with some other facilities that were losing this business, and they screamed and yelled. And I just told them, "Well, then, why don't?" You know, I'll help you and I'll help you figure out how to do this. So we've helped and continue to help uh, anyone that wants to join this movement and and really leave the price gouging Death Star sort of world and you know show prices and bundle them up. We will show them how to do that. I even uh, have a clearinghouse mechanism that I'll make available to price gougers who want to make the transition. So that the Free Market Medical Association was born and you see more websites out there with pricing. And, you know, it kind of all started here. I've had to come to grips with that. I, I, I know that that's actually true. I mean, it started in 2009 when we launched this website. And it, it's so vindicating now to see the extent to which this movement has really astonishingly grown. Yeah, for those in the audience, it's it's really quite eye-opening. If you go to Keith's website, and I should know it by heart, but uh, what is the, what's the website again, Keith? Uh, surgerycenterok.com. Surgerycenterok.com. If you go there and click on, it says prices or pricing, uh, it, it's kind of amazing. I, 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 like, I use it like a parlor trick to amaze people. A couple of outlines of human bodies show up with some circles on them, and you're thinking, okay, I need something on my knee. Click on the knee, and up pop a whole bunch of lists of, of surgical procedures related to knees, and next to each one of them is the exact price down to the penny, which is what they are going to pay in total uh, after uh, after you're done with them. I've shown it to any number of doctors who their mouths kind of fall open, and they're, how do you do that? It's yeah, I, I don't even understand this concept. Anyway, I remember I remember reading too. Also, you said your Canadians were coming in, and I, th- I think I read a quote from you that um, 
They were most astonished when they asked you how long the wait time would be for the surgery. And tell us about that. Yeah, that that is the most common question when a Canadian uh, reaches out to us. You know, how long will I have to wait? And we tell them they don't have to wait at all, that we could work them in tomorrow's schedule if they can get here. And it's it's too good to be true for them. My friend who lives in Vancouver tells me that the old joke that no Canadian is truly content unless he's standing in line. And they really have a hard time wrapping their minds around the idea that they can they can secure care, not just in a reasonable amount of time, but immediately. The most common complaint uh, we still see from Canadians are women who need a hysterectomy because they're tired of getting transfusions. And, you know, they're waiting in line two or three years to see a gynecologist. The Canadian system does not have the capacity to serve people when everything's going well. This COVID uh, mess has really turned them upside down and the waiting lists there are worse than they've ever been. Uh, So I I think that we're going to see a real flood of uh, Canadians seeking care in the United States in the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah, I will never forget. Back in 2007, I interviewed for a professorship up in British Columbia. And I'd say it was one of the prettiest places I've ever been. And my wife and I were just drooling at the thought of living in this natural splendor. But I did have to think, well, I've been a, a critic of their system for a long time. It, do I actually know what I'm talking about, and uh, and is it enough to actually keep me from accepting a job? And I'll jump to the end. They didn't offer it, but it was in contention. And I thought of one simple thing. So about every 10 years, my wife, you know, she goes for her annual mammogram, and about every 10 years or so, the doctor will say, you know, there's some spots on here. I don't think they're anything, but I don't want to take chances. Let's do a biopsy. And so she has a sleepless night. The next morning, she gets a biopsy with the understanding that if it turns out to be something bad, probably within a few days, at most a week, she'll have had surgery dealing with it or whatever treatment is necessary. So I asked a simple question. What if this were to happen to us in British Columbia? And the the numbers that I got from, I think, the Fraser Institute's report there was that if you got that bad mammogram, it would be roughly, on average, four weeks before the biopsy was possible. And if the biopsy turned out bad, it would be a 17-week wait on average before any treatment would start. And I just said, I can't, ever, I can't put you through that, and I can't put me through that when it's my turn to have a bad test. So we had decided we weren't going to take it. They didn't offer it, and nothing has ever made me happier in my life because I didn't actually have to turn down living in one of the prettiest places I've ever set foot in my life. But it's a real problem. Again, just to make this more, we've talked in abstractions. Let's talk in something a little more concrete. There's a famous example that you've told me numerous times and that I've seen written about, and it was a patient, I believe a urological patient in Georgia who contacted you about a surgery they had. And I think it, I think there was like a $40,000 quote they had gotten for it. Why don't you tell that story? Because that, that brings it home better than anything I've ever heard. Not long after I launched the website, uh, we were contacted by a patient who needed a very minor 
uh, urologic procedure, uh, the price for which was $3,600 on our website. He was reaching out to us because the local hospital where his urologist worked in Georgia quoted him $40,000 for the same procedure. I said, well, yeah, and that really is our price, $3,600. So he went back to his urologist and told them I'm traveling to Oklahoma City. Uh, This urologist had lost another patient to us, unbeknownst to me, a couple of months before that. And so he went over to the hospital administrator and just said, listen, you're you're killing me. I'm going to lose two patients because of these ridiculous price quotes. And so the hospital matched our price. Uh, actually, they were four hundred dollars higher. They they did it at for four thousand dollars instead of forty thousand. So his patient uh, reached out after he convalesced, and he fortunately had a great experience and did well. Um, and he reached out and pointed out to me that we had saved him thirty six thousand dollars, and we didn't even do the surgery. And we both laughed and. You know, that really was one of our goals was to start this price war. And I think I told him at the time in my sort of bastiat way, you know, I I like to think about what people do with the money uh, that they did not spend to have surgery because they benefited from from what we listed online. And, you know, what is not seeing the needs and preferences of consumers that can be satisfied uh, because they don't just burn money at a price gouging facility. It's a, it's a lot of money uh, by now. I mean, we've had this website up for quite some time. Jay Kempton and I have worked together for the benefit of his self-funded clients since 2012. And in that time, using this method of purchasing care, his clients have saved over $100 million. Wow. That's compared to PPO allowables. And he had 12,000 lives, I think, uh, that he was managing at his third-party administrator. I think now he has 35,000 lives. But the majority of that savings came in the early days. Uh, But the idea that even if you spread that across 35,000 lives over over the time between now back to 2012, $100 $100 million cheaper than what the PPOs supposedly would have granted his clients with their fictitious discounts is a is a real number. Then you start to think about the number of people in this country that are not part and parcel to the, the government's socialization of the industry. It's still a very, very large number. It's probably close to 200 million people. So that the numbers that are being spent and the numbers that could be saved using this direct purchase approach, cutting out all the middlemen, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, I think the first time you, I heard that story about the Georgia patient, uh, you had said the patient said something like, I feel kind of guilty because you saved me all this money and you're not getting anything out of it. And I believe you said you told him, oh, don't don't worry about that. I'll be getting a whole lot out of this story <laughs> over the years. Yeah, I've had a lot of fun with that. I've also had fun. You know, UCLA copied my website, and there are a lot of people that have asked me, can we copy your website? Because it's fantastic. I mean, as you said, the the guys that created that, they're just extremely talented, and people have asked me, can I copy uh, your website? And I've said, sure, but UCLA didn't ask, and my web designers wanted me to go after them, and I said, oh, no, 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 I'll have so much fun with this. 
But uh, if you want to have some fun, if you have two computer screens, uh, search UCLA cash pricing and look at their website and then look at mine. And you'll notice it's word for word. I mean, they have the same avatar. They have the same drop downs, the circles on the body. But it, it's actually word for word copied. So I've had so much fun with that. I would never, never have had as much fun going after them as I've had. <laughs> as I've had making fun of them for doing that. Yeah, that's um, that's a, a uh, pretty nice piece of flattery. Yeah. That's a pretty high-quality institution to be copying you. You mentioned, I imagine a lot of people listening to this will know the name Bastiat, but a lot of people won't. Frederick Bastiat was a uh, French economist, 19th century, one of the wittiest, uh, most interesting names that it that the economics profession could ever boast. For a little personal brag, I'm, I'm always one of the probably the proudest thing in my career was I I won the Reason Foundation's Bastiat Prize for Journalism in 2014, wow. and so I I just love Bastiat. But uh, and and when I first I don't know you first came on my radar screen and I I clicked on your website at that time your official picture had you standing on the tomb of Frederick Bastiat. So, you know, so why is a physician standing on an economist's tombstone? Well, the Cliff Notes version, when I was growing up, our next-door neighbor uh, was a dentist. And at a fairly young age, he acquired a, a brain tumor uh, that he succumbed to, unfortunately. He was an avid reader, and my father went next door to talk to his, you know, grieving wife and console her and just tell her, you know, our family was there for them. But he's looking at this library uh, that Dr. Carley had that was, it was massive. And my, my dad said, what do you think about me just taking one of these books to remember him by? And and his widow said he would love nothing better. So my dad put his hand on a book called Political Economy by Frederick Bastiat. What are the odds in this probably 4,000 volume library? And that's the book he put his hand on. And he opened it up to read about uh, the petition of the candle makers and also this question Bastiat asked, how, how does Paris know how many tomatoes that it needs for the restaurants for the weekend? And who decides? Who is the all-knowing person? And so all of these wonderful Bastiat-like rhetorical questions that he had so much fun with. And I became very intrigued with him. And my wife and I went to Italy, and I'd read that he had died in Rome and with great difficulty found uh, this church where where his tomb was and said, I have to get my my picture made over Bastiat's tomb. And we, we found it with great difficulty. The people at the church actually did not know who he was or that he was there. Uh, I knew he was there. They typically have lists of, you know, all of the big shots, you know, who were buried in these cathedrals. And I asked Frederick Bastiat and they did not know. They did not think anyone by that name was buried there. And so we looked at every single tomb in this gigantic cathedral and sure enough there it was and it you remember that picture it's not a small tomb i mean it's significant but yeah i 
thought I, I have to have my picture made here. He's just such wonderful, wonderful. His, you know, what is not seen, the petition of the candle makers as a, you know, response to the protectionists. It's just wonderful stuff. And, and he's hilarious. It's one of the funniest, <laughs> funniest authors you would ever read. Yeah, he is. It's uh, very different from the usual image of the economist. So uh, I like uh, both of us having some association. I haven't been to his tomb. I did get to stand at Adam Smith's tomb uh, two years ago, uh, which was kind of a, you know, for for an economist, we have cheap thrills, and that's (laughs) one of them. So so you you were how old when this book came onto your radar screen? I was in college, so I was... I was 20. That book was then put away and not discussed again until until we became acquainted with uh, Lou Rockwell and uh, the Mises Institute and and some of the writers there. And then I began to explore uh, Bastiat more fully. Uh, I don't know that there's much of anything of his that I have not read. If I found out there was, I would go grab it. I was aware of him uh, this what is seen and what is not seen, I became acquainted with again when uh, I discovered Henry Hazlitt. Um, and he was, of course, a huge uh, Basquiat fan. And that's how he began his book, uh, Economics in One Lesson. I've always been a fan of mutually beneficial exchange. I don't, I don't like leverage. I don't like it on me and I refuse to use it. I think it's unethical to use it on others. And so I see economics as is a study of human behavior in the context of mutually beneficial exchange. And as a physician, I embrace that. I embrace that even before I went to medical school. And I didn't want to be part of exchanges with patients, uh, medical or financial, that were not mutually beneficial. So my obsession with economics is really just to continue to scour myself for inconsistencies and just make absolutely sure every interaction with a buyer is one that they enter into willingly. And the reading the the economists that you know we've mentioned so far has been very, very helpful to me and also helpful to make sure and ensure that my business is embracing, not trying to avoid, but embracing the discipline of the market. So you finished med school about what year? In nineteen eighty six. Okay, so you finished in 86, and then you opened the center in 97. Yes. And you put the website up in 09. That's right. So that's quite a, quite a few years into it. So when you opened the center, just to put it into perspective for myself, that was one year after I bought my first Internet-capable home computer. And the internet at that time, or excuse me, the World Wide Web, as we said in those dark, distant days, <laughs> was a pretty primitive place. And a site like yours would have been almost unthinkable. It was probably seven, eight years later that I remember being just astounded because you could go online and get the calorie counts for fast food outlets. And I remember... Uh, you know, that, a couple of us professors were looking at that site and just being amazed by it. So technologically, your what you have now would really not have been feasible until I don't know when. So what I'm what I'm getting at is, were you thinking about these issues all along? And it was, well, I'll wait, and when the technology comes along, I'll be this transparent guy, or 
did the technology come along and you said, yo, now I can be, I can do the Bastiat thing there. How did the two chronologies interact? Yeah, that's a great question. When we opened in 1997, we were aware uh, that patients were were being financially uh, brutalized uh, by the hospitals and that we were accessories to those financial crimes. And so when we opened, our mission was first to never accept a dime of money from the federal government. And the second mission was to ensure that patients would know every single time uh, what they were going to pay us before they arrived. So even though some patients found that troublesome, that we were actually having financial conversations with them about their surgery prior to arrival, we were determined to do that. And I have no doubt that we ran people off with these conversations, but we felt it was incumbent upon us to to reveal ahead of time what patients were going to pay. So we quoted patients' prices over the phone, and we did that starting the first week. When we first opened, we actually filed insurance claims, and so many of the prices we quoted were just what the patient's out-of-pocket was going to be. But I quoted bundled prices for all kinds of surgeries starting way, way back, and it didn't really occur to me that I could launch a website and put those prices out there, it did occur to me to buy some advertising. And a couple of times I bought radio ads uh, where, you know, we advertised that if you will call this number, we will tell you the price of your surgery. And that didn't work very well. Didn't really get any traction. We tried it on uh, one of the local Hispanic radio stations. And, and they're a population that many times has has means, but no insurance. And so we tried tried some things and nothing worked. A friend of mine owns a precious metals business that was growing. And I suggested to him one day uh, while waiting in line to talk to him that he should launch a website and sell his wares online, not even thinking that I should do the same. And I think eventually I realized how ridiculous that was that I was giving someone that advice and I hadn't done it myself. So when I started to think about it, frankly, one of the things that caused me to pause was uh, the retaliation that I knew our business would receive. And, And I have partners here. I don't operate in a vacuum. And I knew that to some extent, I was placing them and their capital investment at the Service Center of Oklahoma at risk by making such a move. But we were reeling. Our back was against the wall when I launched the website. It was uh, almost nothing left to lose, like a act, last act of defiance. So everybody was on board. But I could have probably launched the website a couple of years earlier. Um, I think that I might have encountered some pushback from my partners because things were going well. And everyone agreed there was risk associated with making that move because there were and still are very influential, powerful, wealthy people who do not like what we've done. Uh, They make their living, as Jay Kempton says, off the dysfunction of the industry. They depend on that. So I think that I launched it about as soon as considering all factors that I could launch the website. So when you say retaliation, 
Now, you've talked a little bit about it earlier, but what does retaliation mean? What were you really worried about that could happen? I wasn't really sure. Uh, I just knew the hospitals would hate it. You know, we have these not-for-profit hospitals that charge 10 times what we do and claim to not make a profit. And I knew that would be very embarrassing for me to charge $3,740 for a knee arthroscopy and they're charging $40,000 and claiming to not make a profit and claiming to offer all of this community benefit. I knew that was problematic for them. The insurance companies, I actually thought would love it and would buy from me. And I didn't understand until much later why they didn't want to. Um, They were too chummy basically with the hospitals to come over and, and buy from me. I didn't think the insurance companies would hate it, but I knew the hospitals would. And the hospitals are very, very powerful. They have a lot of muscle uh, at the state legislature. And I knew that we would probably be attacked uh, with legislative efforts. I did not anticipate being attacked by the insurance companies. uh, And I also could not lower my expectations enough to realize that our state health department could be weaponized against us by the powerful hospital lobby. And all those things happened. We were fortunate uh, when we opened that the fellow who was the head in the state house, a Democrat named Fred Stanley, had our back. He saw us as the underdog, as the champion of the poor. So when the big rich hospital cronies showed up to crush us with this or that proposed law. He made sure that stuff went nowhere. It was only later that the Republicans came on board and began to champion free markets, and that that was politically popular for them. But when we first opened, you know, it was it was really the Democrats that had our back. Uh, there was a fellow named Todd Hyatt who was the Speaker of the House and a Republican. And he was politically probably the most heroic of all of the legislators, he and Fred Stanley, that that really stood in front of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma and with their shield and just said no. He was chastised by many of the Republicans who were supported financially by the hospitals for what he did. I, I have to call these guys' names out because that they were not doing what was popular. They were they were principled people, and I know they got bruised for it. But yeah, we were attacked with all manner of legislative attempts to, from outlawing physician ownership of facilities to mandating that uh, 30% of our revenue had to come from Medicare, Medicaid, or uncompensated care. There were all kinds of things that they threw at us. But again, all of it backfired until they stacked deductibles. Yeah, a point that I've made repeatedly, I've tried to make my career about things that are not easily identifiable as left and right, Democratic and Republican. And I remember the first conversation we had when I visited you out in Oklahoma City was was just that, that the lines do not fall along party lines. The notion that Republicans are pro-business and Democrats not pro-business just did not hold in this realm. And uh, I remember you gave me some examples. I think you mentioned that the labor unions were rather pleased with what you were doing at the time. That's exactly right. We've actually had patients come to the surgery center who have looked me in the eye and said, you know, ideologically, I could not disagree with you more, but I can't argue with cheaper and better. And and some of these people have really had to do some soul searching 
to reconcile, you know, these radical free market mavericks. And this approach is actually bringing affordability and accessibility to people who would otherwise not have it. So we argue that this free market approach is the only approach that champions the poor and the more unfortunate. And that's, that is difficult for some people to grapple with who, who are, you know, ringing the bell and waving the flag for some sort of a total government takeover. And what we're, what we're offering could not be more diametrically opposed. And so that that's troublesome and it's caused some people to rethink and, and really do some soul searching. One one legislator who you and I would both accurately characterize as a true socialist is now libertarian. He's made that switch largely because of what he understands now about the free market and its application to to the medical industry. And and to quote him, he said, You've demonstrated the market applies to the medical industry. And if that's true, to what industry does it not apply? And so he he has really, he's done a 180 and, and it's changed him. He was always a guy with whom you could have civil discourse, even if you disagreed. I always find that enjoyable, but he's really come around. He's really come around. So your surprise and confusion about insurance companies is something that I have shared. So my podcast, Time Before Last, I think I put it up in June, was with Dr. Devi Shetty of Narayana System in, in India, who also built a hospital in the Cayman Islands, mainly aimed at Americans, that in many ways resembles Surgery Center of Oklahoma with transparent pricing and one price for the procedure, not you know, 600 line items that you you. Even your accountant couldn't make his way through. So a few years ago, I wrote about the Cayman Hospital. And I said, look, have you ever talked to American insurers and said, why don't you come down here, send your patients down here. Instead of $100,000, we'll do a cardiac bypass for $30,000. And you can save seventy, and I don't know, you can give it some of it to the patient. Uh, and the guy kind of laughed and said, yeah, we've had that conversation many times. I said, well, what happens? He said, it goes the same way every time. He said, they, we tell them, well, yeah, we can do it for 30000 And they get very excited. They say, well, that'd be fantastic. And then it reaches a point in the conversation. They say, well, now, by the way, when we do this, will you be able to give us a break, breakdown of the charges? So, you know, how much is the surgeon and the nurses and the medication and whatever? He said, we say, no, we're just going to tell you it's $30,000 for the whole thing. So, well, we're really accustomed to having our breakdown. So, you know, we'd really like that. And, and, and could you do it? And they said, no, we just give you one price. And you know in advance to the penny what it is. And that's all we're going to give you. And then they get their fr- frown on their face. And they said, well, but we're very accustomed to having our breakdowns. Could, could you do that? And he said, we finally tell him, yeah, we can do that. But it will require us to construct a new building that we'll, we'll have to hire a bunch of accountants, coders, computer programmers, and all of that to handle the breakdown. And then the bypass is going to cost $100,000. So you sort of have a choice, $100,000 with a breakdown or 30000 without it. Which do you want? And he said they sort of conclude by shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, we're, we're really used to having the breakdown. And he said nothing ever comes of it. Now, I haven't 
that that was a, a conversation I had maybe three or four years ago. So I didn't ask Dr. Shetty whether anything had changed. I don't think it has. And that story tells a whole lot about what you're up against and, and exactly why you, I guess, to my knowledge, you're still not dealing with the insurance companies there, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And there's more to it. I mean, it's it's just as evil as you can imagine. The insurance company wants to show a discount. They want a gigantic charge master price to start with, and then they apply this fictitious discount. And then they the brokers who sell this trash, they go out into the world and they market these horrible PPO policies by bragging about the discounts that they can achieve. So, you know, one insurer will say, we get 40% off bill charges. And another will say, yeah, but we get 50% off of bill charges. And if an employer is self-funded, they are actually charged a commission on these discounts that are supposedly achieved. Keep in mind, all of these charges are pre-negotiated, so there actually is no discount. And the hospitals are happy to discount a bill because they need all that ready to maintain the fiction of their not-for-profit status. So an insurance, just to make it really clear, an insurance company will discount a bill from 100000 to 30000 and then they will charge an employer a commission on that $70,000 they supposedly saved. And that's why the insurance companies do not want to deal with Dr. Shetty, who, in my opinion, is maybe the greatest hero alive in the industry. And they also don't want to deal with me because dealing with me or Dr. Shetty is an opportunity foregone uh, when they can't reprice these claims and charge someone for doing that. How does all this change your relationship with your patient? So how different is it for you to deal with your patient versus one of the hospitals that is not transparent and and sends the long complex bill that takes months and months to resolve? How does it actually change the personal relationships? It is so pleasant. It's hard to describe. Um, When patients get over, this is too good to be true. And they realize that we really are not just medical advocates for them, but we're also financial advocates for them. And we're, we're straight with them and we're honest with them. The vast majority of patients who walk out of here, even after a brief surgical encounter, are our friends. I mean, it is, it is impossible to describe the connection that we have with patients when they realize we're not only not like most of the other bad guys, but we are actually on their side. But it takes a bit for people to get over the hurdle of this is too good to be true. There are a lot of patients who never come here because they never get over that hurdle. They really do think it's too good to be true. Now, I've actually been told that I should increase my prices so that it seems more true. <laughs> I don't plan to do that yet. We, we haven't raised them since we've been quoting them over the phone in 1997 with, I think, five exceptions now, now where my costs just changed and I had to do it. That's pretty stunning. Yeah, you know, for the so much for the spiraling cost of, of healthcare, we we just have left the prices the same. And we didn't start off too hot. 
that uh, yeah, our, our relationship with patients, they, they have smiles on their face. They're happy to be here. And, you know, that affects my staff too. My staff realizes, you know, they're dealing with patients who really want to be here. Our waiting room is not full of people because we're signed up on some plan. Our waiting room is full of people who want to be here. So it's it's very important to know as a patient that this, this physician, this staff is doing something for me, not to me. And that's how it feels here. I think patients realize we are here for them. It's not a predator and prey sort of relationship. So it's it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful environment. I think my favorite part of taking the tour of the place was you gave me a tour of your furniture, <laughs> which, which was just spectacular. So, you know, for the listeners, Keith took me, he said, let me show you our boardroom. And he walked me into this room, which is there, kind of cafeteria, whatever, the, the place where the employees take their bag lunches and eat. And there was a big plastic table. He said, this is our boardroom table uh, when we just you know, toss the employees out with their lunches and we meet here. And then you took me to your office, which had a, kind of an old beat up desk. And then you took me out into the lobby and, and asked me, said, look at the furniture out here and tell me your, you know, what you're thinking. And I said, well, kind of nice furniture. Um, so it looks slightly outdated. And you got a big smile and said, that's exactly it. He said, this all came from the doctor's houses. We weren't going to pour money from the center into buying expensive furniture and sending those costs on to our patients. So when we re-outfit our houses, we bring the furniture on here. So still got the same furniture? No. What happened is... I wound up giving so many tours, it could no longer be a point of pride. It was actually a source of embarrassment. So some of the furniture was just too long in the tooth. Um, and I have way too many meetings in my office for that old beat up desk. So we we bit the bullet and after a very, very long, long time, decided to re-outfit this place. I think it was about one year ago. So if you come here now, you, you won't recognize the furniture a year ago, you would have. <laughs> well, then you made it with that stuff for a long time. Yes, we did. Because I was there quite some time ago. So you founded this Free Market Medical Association. Just tell us a little bit about that. I know you've been spreading what you do around the country. and Tell me how that's gone and how widespread it is. Yeah, so... After Jay Kempton and I started working together, his competitors were asking him, how in the world can you deal with a Maverick surgery center like this? And, and my competitors were asking me, how are you providing this pricing? Because we're tired of losing business to you. Uh, and it was Jay Kempton's idea. Jay said, I think we should form an association and see how it goes and see if anyone shows up. And um, the first year, we decided to have a meeting. Jay and I agreed that if 50 people came, that we would scratch our heads and decide if we were going to continue. If 75 people came, then we would continue, even if he and I had to write it, get our checkbook out and continue operation. Uh, the first year we met, we almost had an issue with the fire marshal. There were 130 people uh, that came from all over the country for our first meeting. And this organization has grown every single year. The last time we met, uh, Ron Paul 
uh, was our keynote this year. Our conference is next month. For anyone that's interested, August 5th through 7th, uh, I don't know when this is going to air, but Steve Forbes has graciously agreed to keynote uh, this year's conference in Plano, Texas. The organization, I think, has 30 state chapters now. We network and we are resources to each other. I help other members kind of get launched uh, with a a facility or ideas about pricing. Uh, The organization is now big enough that I I confess to having learned much uh, from my fellow members. I'm I'm now on the receiving end of uh, the benefits of this organization. Our mission was simple. It was it was to grow this movement and, and grow these ideas. Jay, Jay Kempton is very mission-driven, as am I, as a sole focus to generate revenue. Uh, we really are mission-oriented and want to grow these ideas and, and see the market discipline spread and really disrupt things uh, because the American people are the victims of a heist, uh, whether they know it or not. And the only way to make things better um, is, a, is a dose of the market. Uh, the government will never, never fix this. Um, I tell people that they're not interested in solving the caper because they are driving the getaway car. They are part of all of these shenanigans and they've auctioned off all of these favors uh, to their crony pals. And, and so they're, they're never going to be a solution, whether it's the left or the right side of the aisle. Jay and I are on the same page about this, and we we celebrate the relationship between the buyer and the seller. Um, intermediaries in that exchange are welcome only if they facilitate that exchange. Those are basically the pillars of our organization, and and people also that provide services, whether they're sellers or they're intermediaries, need to be very transparent and clear about here is what I do and here is what I charge for it and here's what it looks like. So it's it's a wonderful organization that's full of stop-loss carriers, underwriters, third-party administrators, ERISA lawyers, self-funded buyers, physicians, direct primary care has a huge uh, presence in FMMA. It's a wonderful organization. So one other issue here, price transparency has become something of a buzzword in legislative circles, in Congress, in state legislatures. There are all sorts of initiatives at the state level and the federal level to mandate that, well, you know, this, you know, this guy out in Oklahoma has got transparency. Everybody should be transparent. President Trump issued a, uh, a mandate executive order requiring hospitals to publish well, each hospital would have to publish hundreds, maybe even thousands of different individual prices, and it's likely going to continue under the current administration. I've been doing writing on it for a while, and I'm one of the skeptics. I, I rankle a lot of the people who are usually good friends of mine on this because I really tend to think these are terrible ideas. What do you think of the idea? Should the federal government say everyone ought to be like Keith Smith and publish your prices out there? Yeah, you you and I have talked about this before, and we're on the same page. You know, I like to tell people the the government is that entity whose ideas are so wonderful they have to be mandatory, and and once you mandate something like this, uh, everything changes. Um, 
The first thing that changes if you mandate it is you afford uh, unscrupulous legislators, which is all of them basically, to sell indulgences or sell exemptions. Uh, and that's what's been going on. Hospitals have decided they would just pay the fine rather than comply. The more damaging consequence of a mandate is it allows the industry price gougers to redefine the phrase price transparency. And they've been successful in doing that. Price transparency in the Beltway now is considered what is the patient's out-of-pocket, not actually what does this procedure or service cost. And they've been very successful, uh, the industry players, in, in transitioning that definition. But the ideal situation would have been for Trump to issue an executive order and not enforce it. It actually has done some good because it's changed the narrative. I no longer have the tinfoil hat on my head that I had when I first launched these prices. Now, now the scrutiny is on those who will not reveal prices where it should be. But the market has to solve these problems. Uh, government mandates are never a good idea. I don't, I don't believe in forcing anyone to do anything. Typically, they'll buy their way out. My biggest fear of the Biden administration piling on and making the penalties, you know, two, three million dollars, is it could force further consolidation of the industry. There will be smaller hospitals that cannot comply with this that'll just wind up like all the other little ones before them selling out to the big box hospitals. Two or three million dollars is a rounding error for many of these big box hospitals. That's not big money to them. So uh, just like the minimum loss ratio caused a consolidation of the insurance industry, this transparency price mandate could cause a further consolidation because the, the big boxes are just going to pay the fine and the little ones that can't afford it are just going to be absorbed. But it, all of this mandate price transparency, it has changed the narrative. Um, the expectations have changed. I think that's a positive thing. But you and I are on the same page about making people do stuff. That's a problem. Uh, and all the unintended consequences of these mandates. Uh, and, and that's giving them the benefit of the doubt, the saying that these consequences are unintended. Uh, I think that they're nefarious enough. I wouldn't be surprised if these latest price transparency failure to comply regulations were actually written by the big box hospitals with this in mind. And, you know, that's certainly the usual rule that, the regulated industries have a sizable role in how the regulations on them are written. Who knows enough about hospital pricing to actually say how you should do it? I'm actually writing work uh, work on this now, and when I'm done, I'd love to pass it by you just just for your thoughts. Yeah, I worry about regulatory capture. I, I also worry about even if they are absolutely innocent and well-intentioned, you got to define what price transparency is. And the problem is, once you begin doing that, you force people into inappropriate business models. So I've seen some good writers from whose work I, I generally like, from you know, centrist, uh, right of center, maybe some left of center uh, think tanks and such, who are saying, okay, first of all, to do this mandatory price transparency, we're going to have to tell them how they have to bundle their pricing. And once you begin to tell them, 
Now, we're not going to let you break out the prices. We're going to, you're going to have to pack it together. You create a, a giant engine for cross-subsidies, for hidden prices, for ways to – just all sorts of suboptimal business models. And, and you really can't mandate price transparency unless you tell them how to do all of these minute operations within, within their businesses. Everyone has to price the same. One of my favorite writers, who I'll be interviewing two months from now on this uh, series, is David Goldhill, who wrote Catastrophic Care. And David wrote in that book years ago, what's unique about healthcare isn't pay-for-service, uh, fee-for-service sort of pricing, because all industries have some measure of fee-for-service, and the other industries aren't all bundling. He said the only thing that's unique about healthcare is the expectation that everybody's got to structure their pricing system exactly the same way. And you know, David came out of the communications industry, and he said a great deal of his of his time was spent coming up with novel pricing strategies. And if everybody's got to do it the same way, you lose that whole element of competition. So we're coming toward the end. I did want to mention. You know, one of the other commonalities you and I, I, I like to humanize my interviewees a little bit. So as I listeners of my podcast know, I'm fairly serious amateur musician and why I believe you still are as well. But I was always interested in that, that aspect that you, uh, you took a pretty good serious look at music early on. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I, I grew up in a, a musical home. My mom and dad were both accomplished vocalist singers. Uh, my dad was a actually a celebrated uh, choir director um, in the old Vietnam War days. The USO would have these gatherings. Those were my dad's choirs uh, many times that were singing those gatherings. So I grew up in a musical home and started playing the piano uh, by ear when I was about four. And um, I became pretty good. But uh, when I turned 10 years old, uh, I began studying with a fellow named William Fletcher, who studied with the Levines uh, in, in Michigan. And uh, they were Van Cliburn's instructors, for anyone that doesn't know that. So that was the lineage of my instruction. And he, I think, recognized that I had some talent and worked very hard. And, and I came in runner-up at the Baldwin Junior Achie Keyboard Achievement uh, when I was 13. Uh, and that it was a national recognition, and, and I received scholarship offers from big names to be a pianist, uh, a concert pianist. I played well. I thought about it. I had an opportunity to do that, and there was something about performing, though, as a musician that, for me, fell short of the mutually beneficial sort of exchange uh, that I think I wanted to have in my career, uh, and my brother had uh, gone to medical school, and so that was on my radar. And it was a hard decision. I had a letter in each hand. I had a, a letter. You know, I was accepted to a huge name uh, to come, you know, study piano at this institute, every graduate of which ends up in Carnegie Hall. And my other letter was acceptance to medical school. And it broke my teacher's heart, but I decided, decided to go to medical school. I enjoy playing. I don't play a lot. Uh, anymore just because of time and 
And in order to play the things I really enjoyed playing when I was younger, you really have to practice a lot. I can't just sit down and pick up and play list or, or say Chopin etude like I used to. I have a real appreciation for classical music and jazz, as you do, and, and love to hear talented musicians play almost any music as long as they're talented. So that, that's my background. Well, I had somewhat similar thinking processes. Uh, somewhere, someone offered me informally uh, a full scholarship to do music. And I was a terribly, in many ways, impractical young man. But somehow, practicality seized the moment and said, I don't think I want to try making a living that way. Um, it's a little too risky for my tastes. You, you have to be awfully good to make, to make that work. So I like to be in uh, a profession where there are a whole lot of people who can make a good living and you don't have to be you know, the top of the world to do it. So It's also a hard life. I actually got to play uh, for Van Cliburn on two different occasions and he encouraged me. I played for Gary Grafman. I played for Lauren Hollander and they all, they encouraged me. But I surprised Clyburn when I asked him, if you had it to do over again, would you do the same thing? And he said no. Well, and he did, he did sort of step away from He did. It. I mean, but he was on the road all the time, and it was a hard life. And I think when I asked him that question, he was probably at a low place. And, of course, the guy could play anything. He's just truly one of the most gifted technicians ever. But I, I remember him saying no, and – think, well, you know, I, maybe I wouldn't want to be on the road all the time either. Well, I'm glad you ended up being a doctor, and I'm glad I ended up being an economist, because otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here today having this wonderful conversation. Agreed. <laughs> Keith, anything else you want to say before we go? Oh, I, I just appreciate all that you are doing, and Mercatus, you guys have worked so hard to make sure that uh, this surgery center of Oklahoma tree that fell in the forest was noticed. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. There are there are countless people um, whose financial futures have been preserved from efforts like yours, and and I would encourage you to see that maybe as what is not seen. Um, I tell everyone that is courageous enough to conduct an interview like this that they they really are a part of someone's financial future that is not bleak uh, because of your effort. So I, I just want to say thank you. Delighted, delighted. Keep it up and uh, we'll talk soon again. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Keith. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.